Well, good morning, my friends. And you men are most gracious to accept these occasional substitutes for Sandy. As we're away, I'm Tim Russell. I work with the Memphis Center for Urban Theological Studies. I'm also on the staff here at Second Presbyterian and work with our fellows program. have the privilege of leading one of our congregational communities, one of our church schools. We have a lot to be thankful for as we think of what God has done and no less a thing than the deposit of Scripture that He's given us so that we may follow His will, that we may know Him and serve Him better with what the New Testament Apostle says are peaceable and godly lives. Let me read to you from Obadiah 1, and I just want you to be bathed by this Word of God as I read from you 1 through 21 of this very, very short book. Please hear the Word of God from Obadiah. The Vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. And you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding, in the mountains of Esau? You warriors, O Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble." You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations, as you have done it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink, and he as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble, and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, 
and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Well, Obadiah is that shortest book in the Old Testament. It's never quoted in the New Testament uh, directly, but it has a message that is pulsating throughout this Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And that message could have three parts. First, God is in charge. Second, God's enemies will be defeated. Finally, justice will resound. And the overall message is there in that last verse. The kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom will be the Lord's. In the early church, as the Holy Spirit superintended the gathering of the canon, or the 66 books of the Bible, there was much discussion about Obadiah, without a reference in the New Testament, uh, without a clear reference to when it was written. But perhaps it was placed right after Amos uh, to expand on that short prediction against Edom at the end of Amos, uh, that prophet of justice, where it says, so they may possess, and there in Amos 9.12, so they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. There's a connection between Amos, that prophet of justice, and Obadiah, who says, this is the justice that's going to come upon Edom. And we'll talk a bit more about Edom, Esau, same thing, and their position with the people of God. Obadiah is a vision. He's writing before these things happen. He's giving a warning from God. Do not do this. In this bad day that is to come, do not gloat over what's going to happen uh, to my people. But it's a language of indignant oration against Edom. It is saying, Edom, you have fundamental flaws. There were flaws in their worship. There were flaws in their relationship with the people of God. There were flaws with their charity and how they acted when their neighbors, Israel and Judah, were conquered. And God is saying, if you do this, if you gloat, if you look at them and say, essentially, good for you, then something's going to come upon you. Edom, or Esau, the same, is a nation opposed to God, his person, his purposes, and his people. It was as if they said, we're going to make our flag, and it's going to say on it, anti-God, anti-Israel. It was that strong. It wasn't just a little border skirmish. It wasn't just a little problem with the descendants of Edom, of, of Esau, and the descendants of Jacob. This was a struggle, and it's figured for us here, as the struggle of the nations of the world against the nation of God, against the kingdoms of this world, against the kingdom of God. And so Edom stands as it is as the poster child for bad behavior of all the nations. They signify what it is when a nation says, we don't need Jehovah, we don't need the God of Israel, we will survive on our own. We have our own resources. We're able to get along, and when someone comes and wipes God's people out, we're still going to stand. A contemporary of Hosea, Joel, Amos, Isaiah, they were all talking at the same time, all issuing prophecies. Isaiah has some very strong ones against Edom as well. Obadiah speaks as one whose very name means servant of the Lord. And he's responsible to carry God's word of sovereign rule, both judgment and blessing, to the nations. He talks about the rise and fall. And as I said, the last verse is the key, the message of Obadiah, even the whole Bible. God is creator. He's sustainer. He's the recreator. He's making all things new in Jesus. He's the redeemer. He's the king. His nation, now we understand, 
the church, the ones who love him, the ones who are called out to be his own, are ones for whom he has a plan. He has a plan that is for good for us, that neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come, as Paul says famously in Romans 8, can prevail against. God has a plan for the success of his people. He had a plan for the success of Israel. And anyone who said, I will oppose that plan, was going to run into God's displeasure, his disfavor, ultimately his judgment. But understand that God has a plan, and it's not just based on the fact that he can look ahead and see it. If I look to that counter and say, well, I'm going to plan to have breakfast, that doesn't mean much, because I know the ladies will have put it out there, and it's there. But if I tell you last night, I know that there is going to be my favorite breakfast there, of such and such a thing, and it's going to be my favorite juice, and it's actually going to have ice in the glass, and it's going to be at the very far left corner, and Dan Patterson is going to bring it to me and spill it on me without knowing, And that's planning something, isn't it? Well, the nature of God's planning is not just that he knows, but that he is planning and he's putting things into place. And that should give us confidence. Because God looks ahead. And he plans what we need and he has provision for it. And so it isn't just that God has to say, well, I've got all these millions of people who need food. Let me figure out how they're going to get it. Let me figure out how I'm going to give enough strength to everyone in Thailand and America. And let's remember the poor, pitiful people in the Northeast who are having cold weather and they need more gas. God's provision has been from eternity to eternity. And so that's his plan for the nations who are under judgment. So that's his plan for his people. God's planning is based on an absolute, divine, perfect planning with a single eye toward love for his people, provision for us, so that when we run up against the hard times like Israel did with Edom, God isn't having to say, well, let me figure out another plan here. This first one didn't work. God has a plan A, and it's working out through eternity. And this powerful, passionate, loving planning involves women and men and their actions, good and evil, It involves the nations as well and their actions. God says at one point to Babylon, Babylon, Assyria, you are the rod of my anger. You will bring justice and you will bring judgment upon my people. But woe to you for doing that, because I will then bring my judgment upon you. All the nations have their purpose in God's great plan of salvation for his people. But we have no doubt amidst the rise and the fall of nations, of people, and their fortunes, that indeed the kingdom will be the Lord's. And for those of you who got the study sheet, I decided this morning just to answer the questions for you. That doesn't mean that there's only my answer, but I know that you got this, and I know how frustrating it can be when you say, okay, I've got this study sheet. What are the answers? Well, first, what is God's perspective on Edom? Well, my answer is, you've got to come down. Edom, you're not right. There's been the centuries-old fight between the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Esau. And they fought against each other even though they were brothers, but they lived like strangers and foreigners. And so, what's God's plan for Edom? Well, it's destruction, but there's always the caveat that if you don't do evil, I will forgive. If you do the right thing, I'll bless you. So God's perspective on Edom is that you're a betrayer of Israel. Now remember, if you could think of uh, Israel as uh, my arm, and Israel's up here and Babylon's up here at the top, and they would come down the south, And they would come down and go through Edom, come back up to the south to go to Jerusalem. That was sort of the long way around, but it was the best way around. So uh, hold up a pencil 
and think of it, the long pen or pencil as Israel, Babylon would come down one side, go up the south, and they would attack Jerusalem. Well, who did they meet when they went down south with the Edomites? And what were the Edomites saying when they would come? Instead of saying, we're going to help you, Israel. We know they're trying to get to Jerusalem, but we're going to stand in the midst for you. They stood back, opened the gates, and said, go get them. They're no good. Now we're going to see what the Babylonians are going to do to them. Now, it was going to be true that the Babylonians were going to have control over Edom as well. But they felt it's better for these pagan, heathen, horrible foreigners to have control over our area than for the people of God. And so God's perspective is, Edom, you have no idea how bad it can be. You think Babylon is harsh? Wait till you come under my displeasure, under my judgment for what you're doing to my people. And so the why is because they're continually disobedient. They're that really bad child that no matter what you do, no matter how severe the punishment is, no matter what you say, no matter what the lecture, the child doesn't say, yes, I'll do right. The child says, I'm still not doing it. I'm not going to do right. I heard a mother recently say to her child, I'm the boss. And her child wouldn't kneel down and pray. She said, we're going to pray. And this may not have been the greatest way of doing it, but I can understand. Mother said, you're going to kneel down and pray. The child said, I am not. The mother said, I'm the boss. And so she pushes the child down and says, we're going to pray to Jesus about your attitude. She knelt with the child, and she said she could hear under his voice the child saying, I'm the boss. I'm the boss. And she said, I realized I could make that kid pray, but he didn't want to. Well, Edom is saying, I'm the boss. I'm the boss. And God is saying, we'll see. Well, list the idols in which the people of Edom put their trust. Well, there's pride. They're saying that we can do this. We can rise up. We are the ones who can destroy Israel. We've got a plan. And they didn't have charity for their neighbors. They had some military ability. It certainly wasn't as great as Babylon. And the Edomites were always making these raids up into Jerusalem. And they go up and they'd be like little pests. And they go up and they conquer a little bit and they do some things. And then they go back to their sanctuary. And instead of being the helpful neighbors to the south of uh, Israel and Judah. They were the ones who were always raiding, and you'd have to be looking at their flank, and Israel would have to say, okay, we have problems from the north, from Babylon. What's going on with Edom? And sure enough, Edom will be snipping at them. So there's a lack of charity for their powerlessness, which is what verse 11 is talking about, and there's an oppression of others, and that's what verses 12, 13, and 14 are getting at. You should not look down on your brother on the day of his misfortune. God is saying, Israel, my people are going to have a hard time of it, but at that time, you shouldn't look down on them. You shouldn't gloat in what's happening to them in the day of their destruction, nor boast. You shouldn't march through the gates as they did after the Babylonians came and said, well, now look at you. See how much power you have? The Babylonians have taken you over. Now, what's God going to do for you? In the day of their calamity, in the day of their disaster, you shouldn't seize their wealth. And that's exactly what Obadiah is prophesying is going to happen in the Babylonian conquest that came um, in uh, 586. He says, you shouldn't wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives nor hand over their survivors in the day of battle. And that's exactly what happened when the Babylonians came and they were routing the people of Israel. The Babylonians should have said, I mean, the Edomites should have said, come to us, we'll help you, we're your neighbor. But when they saw the uh, people of Israel fleeing, they said, well, let's take some of them and sell them into slavery. We'll make some money off of their calamity. Well, In the political profile, you see that there's Edom, these descendants of Esau, political, theological enemies of Israel, God's people. And then there's Babylon, which is always waiting for someone to lead up with them in their conquest. And they're sort of a casual ally. 
So Obadiah is looking ahead to this time when Nebuchadnezzar is going to come down, make this raid, and he's saying, on behalf of God, I know what you're going to do. You're going to sell your neighbors. You're going to take advantage of them. When they flee, you're going to run after them and sell them as slaves. God is looking ahead at that time and saying, don't do this. I'm telling you what you're going to do. I'm warning you. Well, the Babylonian captivity came along. Israel was dismembered, dispossessed, and dispersed. But God always has a people who are willing to fulfill his purpose. They're going to go into exile because of disobedience. We're going to say more about that and what God does with those people. They're oppressed because they've been bad. Israel has departed from their belief in God, their knowing about God, and from their teaching about God. We've seen that in earlier studies of the minor prophets. You'll see it again and again. God is using these prophets to say, return to your first love. Love me. Care for me. Worship me in the way that I have given to you in the scriptures. If you don't, I'm going to use all these nations around you to come and bring judgment upon you. And Obadiah is one of those. And what's the punishment for the people who oppress God's people, for the Edomites? Well, you see it there in verse 10. God will bring judgment uh, upon them. Uh, he's saying to Israel, you're bad. But he's saying to Edom, you're worse. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, or Israel, it's using Jacob and Israel uh, as synonymous terms, you will be covered with shame, you will be destroyed forever. Now again... Obadiah is a prophet who's seeing ahead. He's saying, if you do this, you will be destroyed. Now, you already know the answer. Did they hear him and say, well, we won't do that? No, they didn't say that. Um, the contemporary question is, how should we look upon the disaster that's coming upon other people and nations? Well, in verses 15 and 16, it speaks of the day of the Lord being near. And the day of the Lord is used throughout the scripture. It's speak, spoken of as different days, small d, when God would bring judgment, and that was the day of the Lord. Anytime God says, I'm going to do this, and then it happens, that's the day of the Lord. But it's looking forward to that grand and glorious day when Jesus Christ returns in glory, and all of his enemies are put to rest forever and ever and ever. And so all of these times when God brings judgment against a nation... The other nation should say, hmm, well, God has flacked them upside the back of the head. Won't he do that to us? Anyone can look at the Assyrian Empire, then the Babylonian Empire, then the Persian Empire, the Romans, the Greeks. Look at any empire through, uh, through history, and each nation has had its rise and its fall. And God has judged them for their disobedience. Look at the former Soviet Union. Many people thought that it would stand for many, many more years than it did. But God brought the godlessness of the nation down. And so every nation, no matter when or where, should look at God's dealings and say, if you don't love God, if you don't do justice, if you oppress people, if you want to live apart from his commandments, eventually, whether it be tens or hundreds of years, you're going to come down. That's a warning to America as well. We need to be aware that God's judgment shows no favoritism. Wherever there is disobedience, wherever there is oppression, wherever there is unrighteousness, where people say, we don't need the Lord, we don't need the word of the Lord, and we don't need the people of the Lord. The day of the Lord is close. Judgment is there. So how should we look upon disaster? Well, we should have fear and repentance and a sober realization that God is serious about sin. And not just our individual sins. The leaders of uh, Edom were guilty. But the individual people were guilty as well. They made national policies that were against the gospel. But the individuals were making their own lifestyles that were opposed to the gospel as well. And wherever that contemporary application is due,
people should be aware that God will not forever say you can get away with this. What's the contrast between Edom's future and the future for God's people? Well, an interesting prophetic voice. There is going to be deliverance that comes from Mount Zion. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. What's significant about Mount Zion? Think about that. Think about that prophecy. It's not just that that place in Jerusalem. What specific wonderful act took place? Well, I've already mentioned it. It's the cross. Deliverance is going to come from Mount Zion. The cross where Jesus made a spectacle of the nations, as Colossians 2.15 says. Obadiah is looking not just at the time when Israel will return from its captivity, but he's looking ahead to a time when the Redeemer, when Jesus is going to, in the midst of Jerusalem, on that great Mount Zion, go out and defeat all the nations by dying on the cross. And so what Obadiah is saying is, be aware of what's going to happen because death is going to come to you and there's going to be deliverance that comes. There's going to be a flame uh, that comes. And I've called this uh, a divine, what goes around comes around. Anybody ever use that phrase? I would hear that from my mother when I was young and I wouldn't do the right thing. And she would say to me, okay, remember, what goes around comes around. And for a long time, I had no idea what that meant. And as long as I didn't get a spanking, I didn't really care uh, what she was talking about. But what she was saying is, you know, you do those things and you're disobedient, it's going to come around. And there's some biblical precept in that. Now, don't go searching through your concordance. You're not going to find in some book what goes around comes around. It's an expression, really, of God's judgment is going to come. You do evil, evil is going to come back to you. You do good, well, expect that you're going to be rewarded for that. Well, Jesus on the cross gives the ultimate expression of God bringing judgment and justice. And where evil has flourished for a long time and where people thought, well, we'll get away with this. It won't make any difference. Jesus says that's, that's not the case. Uh, you're going to have to pay uh, for what you've done. There's going to be a return of that that's taken by injustice. There's going to be a restoration. And you see that in uh, verses uh, 19 and 20. And they're making reference to the time when even though the Babylonians would come, the Edomites would help them to destroy Israel, and the Babylonians would take the people away and disperse them to the lands, they were going to come back. Now, you know that Psalm 137 was written while they were in Babylon. And where the psalmist says, by Babel's streams we sat and wept. And our captors said, why don't you sing the Lord's song? And they said those famous words, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We just hung up our lyres. You know where they hung them? The literal tree? They hung up their lyres on the poplars. We just hung up our musical instruments on the poplar trees and we said, we can't sing. We can't sing about the Lord. Essentially what they were saying is, he's embarrassed us. He's shown us this favor. The Edomites jeered at us. Now we're in this foreign land. But God promised after a time that he would bring his people back to the land of promise. And Psalm 126 is written in the occasion of that return. Now remember... When the Babylonians came, the Edomites were saying, go get them, go get them, that's right. And we'll pick off the ones that you leave. What happened when God brought Zion's exiles back? I'm just quoting from Psalm 126. It says, we were like men in a dream. Our tongue was filled with a song and our mouth was just overflowing with praise. Because God brought Zion's exiles back. In the same way that he had taken them. And this great band of people are brought back 
And you can imagine that some of them were going to the towns of Edom and saying, you thought you had done us in. You thought we were gone forever. We're back. God has shown favor. And when they went south, they went through the south, which is called the Negev, or the Negev in your translations. And so the south is refreshed again because of the return of God's people. And they went through Edom, and they said, the nations looked at us, again, quoting Psalm 126, and the heathen, or the nations, literal translation, said, the Lord has done great things for them. So great was God's favor in carrying away a whole nation into exile and then bringing the nation back and letting them point to their enemies that the nation said their God has done wonderful things for them. Now, isn't that the way that the church of Jesus Christ should be living in every age? When God does good things for us, your friends, your neighbors, those who see any faith in you say, you know, the Lord has done great things for him. The Lord look at your family and say, the Lord is doing great things for you. Does he look at the church of which you may be a part and say, boy, the Lord is doing wonderful things among those people. You know, they may not be written up in the paper. It may not be the largest and the biggest and the most prosperous. But whatever they're doing, their God is doing great things for them. That's what took place in Psalm 126. And it says... The sower goes out sowing in tears, but he will reap with joy. And that is the eternal lesson of God's dealing with any of us in any place. Whether you're in Old Testament Israel and Edom is saying to the Babylonians, go get them, go get them, go get them. Or if you're living in 21st century Memphis, Tennessee, where maybe your coworker, maybe a friend, Maybe a family member is saying, 6.30 in the morning to go hear a preacher talk about a book that you have to admit that you can't even find without quickly looking in the concordance? What's up with that? Well, you say, you know, it's hard being a Christian in some good times. When we go forth sowing the seed of living the gospel, it's a difficult thing. When people look at you and say, business ethics, get a life. Just do the job the best way and get it done and just don't get us hung, please. Or when you say, we can't do it this way because I'm not just concerned about the bottom line. There's my conscience. And someone around you says, your conscience? Just get the job done. Or when people say, and you give how much to your church? What do you get back for that? And you just say, well, the blessing from God. There's something in the way a Christian will live that will cause hardship or persecution or difficulty to come. And whether you're doing the right thing all the time, you're still going to be like that sister who was standing here, whose hip degenerates and you can't work any longer. Or you do your job right and you get fired. Or you find out that your partner's an idiot and you've been uh, left with nothing after years of working. Or your kids just don't turn out right. Or your spouse leaves you. Or you find out she's cheated on you. Or premature death hits your family. Each of us who bears the name of Christ is going to experience the hardship and the tears that Psalm 126 speaks of. Of going out to sow. And it's hard. And hardship hits everyone. It's an equal opportunity abuser in that sense. But the psalmist goes on to say, we will go forth sowing in tears, but we will reap with joy. And isn't that what the New Testament says? That those who continue in faith will reap a great harvest. 
a harvest for believing and having faith that God does have a plan. And even though there are the Edomites in your life and in your block and in your company and right next to you that you have to face in just an hour or so, that God says, I have a plan for you. And I have a plan for the Edomites in your life. Just hold on. Because you will be like Zion's exile. You may get knocked in the head. You may get pushed aside. But you will reap with joy. Well, Obadiah is teaching us a great lesson about that. About the grand vision of God and what difference it makes. I love that wonderful expression of uh, Isaiah, and I remember it well from Chariots of Fire when Eric Little is speaking, and he says in that wonderful Scots tone, all the nations are but a drop in the bucket. Just a little drip. You know, if, if you think of all the great nations of America, of uh, the world, they're just, just a drip. One, two, three. But what stands... After all those little drips are gone, is the kingdom of God. Just a drop in the bucket, great though they think they are. And when we pray to God, your kingdom come and your will be done, we are praying a powerful prophetic prayer. It is the pattern that the Lord has given us, and we're saying to him, Lord, come and change or get rid of the Edomites. Stop those people who are sniping around me, your church, who are the enemies of God. The ones whom you've warned, Lord. Either change them or remove them. And Jesus says, I'm going to remove them. I am going to have my way in the world. Because, as Obadiah says, the kingdom will be the Lord's. And when we pray, oh God, let your kingdom come and your will being done, one of the things we're saying is, if you don't change those people who are against you, you're going to remove them. And that's what Jesus says. And every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess. And you know what? It's not going to be like the little boy who sang... I'm the boss. I'm the boss. On that last great day of the Lord, knees are going to bow willingly. And the confession is going to be, you are the Lord. You are the king. You are the boss. And I love you for it. And there won't be any nations of Edom. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Question is, what kingdom are you a part of? What kingdom do you enjoy? Isaiah 62:11 says, "The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your savior comes." See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. The question that was asked in the Old Testament is, Edom, are you going to do the right thing? Are you going to keep oppressing my people? Are you going to keep sniping at them? Are you going to be the one who gives them over and does the clean-up mission after the Babylonians get through? Or are you going to identify with Israel? Or are you going to identify with me? And that's the question that goes out to every man, woman, and child in every age. Who do you identify with? The Edomites? The enemies of God? The ones who are sniping at the church at God's purposes? Or do you say the church, the people of God, as imperfect as it is, are my people? And I'm part of it. Because it's God's plan. And it's going to triumph. 
and the only institution that will last to the end of time. Read Revelation. Sandy already taught us about it. The only institution is the church. Jesus is never going to neglect his bride. He's going to nurture it, love it, care for it. The question is, where are you? In what kingdom? What about the people around you? What is your concern for them? Well, the Lord brought Zion's exiles back. We were like men in a dream, the psalm says. The Lord has done great things for us. Well, my friends, has not the Lord done great things for you? And do people around you admit that? Do they confess it? And even as you go forth sowing in tears, may it be that you reap with joy. And the words of Matthew 6, 33 speak to each of us. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And the word that stands forever is, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you have founded a kingdom of which you are the Lord and head. And you have brought us into that kingdom through love and affection. And we thank you for it. And know that even though the hands of violent men and women would want to seize your kingdom, you protect it. And even when the hands of Babylon or Edom or any totalitarian, godless regime comes against your people, you will protect it. You will protect us. Lord, protect those men gathered here today who experience fierce and hard things in daily living. Whether it's sickness, whether it's underemployment or unemployment, whether it's hardship where they work or where they live. And for those who have come, Lord, weary, give them rest. Give them hope for the future. Give them confidence that indeed the kingdom, even as it exists in Memphis as well, is yours. Reign, King, eternal. Jesus, we thank you that you are crowned with many crowns. Rule over us and what we do in Memphis, in Shelby County, in the Mid-South, for the glory of your name. And may people look at us and say, God has done great things for them. And may we say, yes, Lord, indeed you have. For the glory of Christ, our only Redeemer, we pray. Amen. Astounded that Sandy can stand up here and do this. Yeah, and, and actually look a, and look alive. Well, yeah, I stayed awake after I was asleep. 